Thank you so much for joining me today on Just Praise Him Radio. I'm your host, Linda Lomax, and my job is to inspire you to a closer walk with Christ. Now here's the show. Hello, believers. Welcome to the Just Praise Him radio show. I'm your host, Glenda Lomax, and the title of my message today is Answering the Call to Ministry. Today, we're going to be talking about some basic qualifications that are needed to teach the Word of God, what to expect when you answer your calling to teach the Word of God, various aspects, including maturity, the money part, unbelieving spouses, education or Bible knowledge, some of the frustrations of ministering the word, some pitfalls to watch out for, and things like leaving loved ones behind to answer the call. I have with me on the show today my good friend Ray Bergman, who runs the Innocence Redeemed blog. Welcome to the show, Ray, and thank you for joining me. Hi, Glenda. Thank you for having me back. So in times of economic hardship, many people try to get any type of income coming in they can. That's natural, right? I remember during the Great Recession, so many people applied for disability, and some just got on, you know, assistance checks, because everybody's got to pay their bills, right? Many started their own businesses, and a few answered God's call to become ministers of the Word. The Lord showed me one morning this week that many are being called to answer that calling now to teach the Word of God. There are other types of ministries, but this is the one we're going to be talking about today, about teaching the Word of God. We are truly in that time that time is so short. If you don't answer the calling now, you will soon run out of time to answer at all. When we pass on the calling, God passes the calling to someone who is willing and you lose your chance. There are some qualities you really need to have if you are to minister the word of God. They may not be what you think. When the Lord called me to this ministry, I asked him repeatedly over several years if I needed to go to Bible college. He said no every single time, and he said it clearly. Bible college can give you knowledge about the Word and the history of the Bible and all that, but it cannot give you the personal characteristics or integrity that you need to become a minister of the Word of God. Let me tell you a story as an example. What qualifies someone for a task? Here's a story of the testing of a candidate for missions work. One snowy morning at 5 a.m., a missionary candidate rang the bell at a missionary examiner's home. Ushered into the office, he sat three hours past his appointment time waiting for his interview. At 8 a.m., a retired missionary appeared and began his questioning. Can you spell? Rather mystified, the candidate answered, Yes, sir. All right, spell Baker. B-A-K-E-R. Fine. Now, do you know anything about numbers? The examiner continued. Yes, sir, something. Please add two plus two. Four, replied the candidate. That's fine, said the examiner. I believe you've passed. I'll tell the board tomorrow. At the board meeting, the examiner reported on the interview. He has all the qualifications for a fine missionary. First, I tested him on self-denial, making him arrive at my home at five in the morning. He left a warm bed on a snowy morning without any complaint. Second, I tested him on promptness. He arrived on time. Third, I examined him on patience. I made him wait three hours to see me. Fourth, I tested him on temper. He failed to show any anger or aggravation. 
Fifth, I tried his humility by asking him questions that a seven-year-old child could answer, and he showed no indignation. So you see, I believe the candidate meets the requirements. He will make the fine missionary that we need. Spirit-given abilities are needed, but spirit-produced fruit is more significant. That illustration is from a book called The Biblical Preaching, over 1,500 sermon illustrations by Michael P. Green. It's really good. Be that as it may. No man sets out to build a house without first sitting down to count the cost. And make no mistake, going into ministry for the Lord will cost you. If you want to be an anointed teacher of the word, you will go through a process where you become anointed. It will be a very difficult one. Let me explain. The anointing or ease with which we do our work for the Lord is represented by oil. Anointing oil is made from olive oil. Olive oil can represent the Holy Spirit, as in the parable of the ten virgins in Matthew 25. Olive oil was used to fill lamps to bring a light, which is exactly what teachers of the Word of God do. Kings were anointed with it when they were chosen to rule. Priests were sanctified with it. It was also sometimes used as a symbol of abundance, joy, and health, all of which come from the Lord. The five foolish virgins in the parable of the ten virgins were the ones who did not keep their lamps full of oil. The Lord just said that is a word for somebody. You have been putting off and putting off your time studying the word. You've skipped over it. You've pushed God to the side and been busy with everything else, probably everyone else. He says to you, take heed, for you know not the day or the hour of my soon return. Would you that I find you busy about worldly matters or immersed in my holy word? Anointing also relates to the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus prayed earnestly the night before his crucifixion. Gethsemane means oil press. So to become anointed, expect to be pressed to your limits and then press some more so that the oil of ease or anointing can be very evident in your ministry. Now, you can teach the word of God without an anointing, but it will be dry and lifeless teaching. And I'm sure we have all heard examples of that. You choose. When you answer the call, if you want the Lord's full blessing on what you are doing, be willing to pay the cost. Also be willing to do it his way. You will also be required to lay down the sin in your life and give up activities that are not pleasing to the Lord. Make no mistake, the Lord may want you to work for him, but you are not at Burger King and you are not going to get it your way. Can I just say that? He don't need you that bad. He can call somebody else more willing and less prideful. Think about that. Luke 14, 28. And I'm going to read for the New King James today because it's so much easier to pronounce. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it? 29. Lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him. Today we are going to talk about that very thing, counting the cost of answering your call to minister the word of God for the Lord in these times. I've been meaning to talk about this for a long time. 1 Peter 5, 2, shepherd the flock of God, which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. Verse 3, nor is being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Verse 4, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Now, who doesn't want that? Okay, we're going to look at some verses in 1 Timothy 3 that talk about the qualities needed for ministry. 
These talk about a bishop, but apply pretty much to any ministry you could be in. Everyone is not called to pastor a church. Pastors are just one spiritual gift. Ephesians 4.11, and he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. 1 Timothy 3.1, this is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. Okay, according to my Bible, the office of a bishop then was the same as the office of a pastor now. So it's someone that teaches the word and oversees a church if you're a pastor. Verse 2, a bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach. Verse 2 is saying a pastor must live a life above reproach. This is so we do not dishonor the holy name of God. If you are not willing to do your best to live a life above reproach, do not go into ministry. Any sin you struggle with, the devil already knows about. Verse 3, not given to wine, no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous. If you are a person who likes to drink every night or do drugs, you are not really cut out for ministry, okay? If you love money or are greedy or covetous, you will end up dishonoring the name of the Lord. If you are argumentative and like to argue and fight with people, you will not make a good minister. Let's talk about leaving loved ones behind. Sometimes when the Lord calls you to ministry, he leads you to move someplace else. Be aware not everyone agrees with you when you are led to do this, okay? Also be aware that loved ones often become the first to shout doubt at you when you're standing in faith to minister or to work solely for the Lord. And leaving loved ones behind is painful, y'all. I cried every mile of the trip on my first faith walk from Sarah, Oklahoma to Dallas in 1998. I did not want to leave my mom, my baby grandson, or my son and daughter behind. But I knew the Lord said, go, so I went. And my brook had dried up. I was about to be sleeping in my truck where I was. Or in some cases, you have to leave them behind because of the unbelief. You have to leave them where they are, and that's part of counting the cost. You know, before I started, I went through a long wilderness journey, and several people I attempted to witness to, friends mostly, they, I mean, they just dropped me. And that's just the unbelief of many who are in the world, or those who cannot or will not accept that you've changed. You know, Jesus spoke of this when he was rejected at Nazareth, when he was sending out the 12 disciples. And on that point, I'd like to read from Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. And I'm going to read from the New Living Translation here. Starting on verse 1, Jesus left that part of the country and returned with his disciples to Nazareth, his hometown. The next Sabbath he began teaching in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. They asked, where did he get all this wisdom and power to perform such miracles? Then they scoffed, he's just a carpenter, the son of Mary and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. And his sisters live right here among us. They were deeply offended and refused to believe in him. Then Jesus told them, a prophet is honored everywhere except in his hometown and among his relatives and his own family. And because of their unbelief, he couldn't do any miracles among them except to place his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their unbelief. Then Jesus went from village to village, teaching the people. If the Lord asks you to move across the country or to a strange locale, and by the way, usually with very little provision and no job or house where you're going, you will have to choose between staying near the people you love and moving to someplace else to do the Lord's will. How will you answer if he does that? We all think we will say, yes, Lord, send me. 
But if he told you to give away all your stuff right now and leave tonight, would you do it? And would you do it if everyone in your household came against you for doing it? Because that's the time we live in, y'all. And a man's enemies will be those of his own household. That's Matthew 10, 36. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. To minister the word of God, you must believe unequivocally that the Bible is the inerrant word of God. I used to work in sales in my 30s. One thing I quickly learned about sales is you cannot sell what you do not believe in. It is the same with the word of God. How are you going to convince anyone else to believe what you clearly do not believe yourself? And by the way, another way we disbelieve the word of God is with the sin in our life. So I'm just saying. And not having true belief also does not help in prayer. You're going to pray for something, but what about believing for it? You know, in ministry, some will say they believe, but then ask you to constantly pray for them. A minister of the word cannot and should not be a crutch to excuse you from your own prayer and walk. This is important to understand because though we minister the word, we cannot carry everyone's burdens. Jesus carries our burdens. That is the point of giving the Lord our concerns in prayer. Just because we're teaching the word does not mean we're the 700 Club prayer line guys. I mean, don't get me wrong, we do pray in general, but we can't do it for every single person we come into contact with. It's just not possible, nor is it reasonable. That is so true. And I've been saying for years that I can, you know, there are thousands of people who listen to the teachings that we put out, but there's only like one or two of us. There's me, just me with my ministry, just you with your ministry. And you can't do everything for everybody. It's not that you don't want to, you can't. So yes. And if you don't believe enough to pray for your own needs, how can you pray for others needs? You will be constantly asked to pray for others when you are a minister. And as a side note, for anyone who does not have enough faith to pray, who are you going to ask to pray for you when the tribulation starts? A pastor cannot possibly do all the praying for even a hundred people. I have thousands of subscribers on YouTube alone, but I'm one person. I cannot at this point even respond to all the emails and comments. And I thank God for my assistant, Dina, who helps me with that. A minister should love the word of God and love studying the word of God as they write sermons. If you don't love the word or want to be in the word every day, you're not cut out for a teaching ministry. Amen. And you have to be willing to deny yourself. As a teacher of the word, you must believe yourself that the word means what it says. And first and foremost, you have to be able to understand the mystery of Jesus Christ so that you're able to explain the testimony of Jesus as well as teach accurately all scripture as it pertains to proper living as a Christian and the prophecies given. You know, many shy away from that because they're afraid of being disliked. But the Lord calls on those who will teach what his word says, whether what we say sits well with others or it doesn't. Not every part of the Bible is feel good. I mean, much of it's serious. And you have to be prepared that there will be mockers and scoffers. Those who know you will also try to deflect and point the finger at you or someone else. But what these individuals must remember is that they individually will give an account. And you have to be content that you have done your job correctly. In other words, everyone will always have an opinion, but you can't be afraid of them as we're supposed to speak boldly. All of us as Christians should be doing this as followers of Jesus, not just those of us called to teach. Very well said. I agree. 
2 Timothy 4, verses 2-5 through five say, Preach the word of God, be prepared, whether the time is favorable or not. Patiently correct, rebuke, and encourage your people with good teaching. For a time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. They will follow their own desires and will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. They will reject the truth and chase after myths. But you should keep a clear mind in every situation. Don't be afraid of suffering for the Lord. Work at telling others the good news and fully carry out the ministry God has given you. As a minister of the word, you will at times, especially in these wicked days, suffer for doing what's right, like I was just saying a moment ago. Sometimes there won't be any response at all, and you don't know whether or not you're being effective, but you have to proceed forward in faith. You know, one of the things the enemy loves to do is get you focused on non-response, but you have to fight with everything that you have to overcome it. And this was a lesson for me personally, even though before I began, the Lord said that at times it would seem I wasn't being heard, but that they would remember what he told me to tell them. And you have to remember that when you are teaching, people aren't always going to come forth and have something to say, especially if they're feeling conviction along with the lateness of the hour. You don't want to become prideful thinking that somehow that recognition is owed to you. If you do, that's when you're going down the pathway of pride. And at first, it can seem like a challenge, but the Lord will help you to understand that it's not about you. And, you know, it also goes back to what you said at the beginning, Glinda, about being argumentative. There's so many times you will be tempted, and you have to humble yourself at times and walk away. You know, 2 Timothy 2 verse 24 says, A servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but must be kind to everyone, be able to teach, and be patient with difficult people. And that leads us to the next point, which is pride. 1 Timothy 3 Verses 6 through 7 say, A church leader must not be a new believer because he might become proud and the devil would cause him to fall. Also, people outside the church must speak well of him so that he will not be disgraced and fall into the devil's trap. You can't have the mindset that you do no wrong and you're exempt from expectation just because you are called to minister the word. Remember that Romans chapter 2 verse 11 says that God has no favorites. Jesus dined with the sinners and we are not greater than he is. You actually do better being relatable to fellow brethren who face the same struggles. Don't think you're high and mighty or too good to help someone struggling, for Romans 12 verse 16 says, Be of the same mind toward one another. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. You know, nobody's perfect, we're all human. And though we strive to do right, we do fall short, as spoken of in Romans 3, verse 23, which says everyone falls short of the glory of God. But we continue, just like anyone else, to improve each and every day. And you will be tested on everything you teach. And that includes your tongue. Don't think that a teacher is exempt from the same rules as set forth in the word as everyone else. As a matter of fact, James 3, verses 1 through 2 say, Dear brothers and sisters, not many of you should become teachers in the church, for we who teach will be judged more strictly. Indeed, we all make mistakes. For if we could control our tongues, we would be perfect and could also control ourselves in every other way. Remember, you serve the Lord and do it willingly, giving him the glory. Controlling your tongue when you teach on something and start getting nasty grams is part of why the Lord does not want those who don't have control of their emotions teaching. It's very difficult sometimes, especially when you're going through something behind the scenes or studying your heart out. You know, you want to give a rich teaching to help the sheeple in their walk, and you have $2 left in your checking account and one hot dog to eat for dinner. 
I'm just saying many who don't teach have no idea what it's like behind the scenes. Many times for those who do. You must be willing to endure in those times and endure when the nasty grams come and when you're called terrible things after pouring everything you had into a teaching trying to help others. This is part of every minister's walk, bar none. It's true. You endure a lot, and that includes attacks and testing. But on the positive side, it builds endurance. But that's all part of counting the cost. Amen. There are times when the pastor or teacher of the word becomes very unpopular for something they said or taught. Charles Swindoll, in Dropping Your Guard, wrote this. He said, I remember the words of Sonny Jurgensen when he was quarterback for the Washington Redskins football team. He was being attacked by fans and sports writers alike as his team was in a slump. Somebody asked him if all that flack was getting to him. He flashed a big toothless grin. He said, no, nah, not me. He said, I'll be in this game long enough to know that every week the quarterback is either in the penthouse or in the outhouse. And that can apply to ministry, too. And that leads us into our next point, which is maturity. Many people will disagree with you when you teach the word of God. So maturity is a must. An immature person has no business teaching the word. And another thing, and this is not in my notes, y'all, but another thing is anytime you teach the word, two things happen. One, you're tried on yourself in your own personal life on everything you teach, as Ray can attest. And two, the devil is going to attack you constantly. And the more truth you're putting out, the harder those attacks are. And he's going to attack everything in your life. It's really annoying. It can get ridiculous. So, it can be ridiculous at times, as you, I'm sure you okay. know just as well. Yeah, it, it's not a so, game. People sometimes think it's, it's just intense and unrelenting for days and weeks at a time. Yeah, it's not a cakewalk. No, it's not. So maturity is a must. One of the marks of maturity is the ability to disagree without becoming disagreeable. Charles Swindoll wrote that in The Grace Awakening. And this is part of the reason pride is such a hindrance to a minister. And on both of those points, you can't be afraid of what others think of you either. I mean, people yeah. are going to have, they're going to, everyone's going to have an opinion. They all have opinions. I've had people comment critically on things that were in the background when I made videos. I've had people comment because I dressed up to make the videos. Some guy asked me a long time ago, he goes, or he didn't ask me, he said, you need to be careful you don't become a religious diva. I didn't know what that meant. I had to go look up diva because I really didn't know what that meant. And, and it still took me a while to figure out what he was talking about. I was just trying to look nice because my mom always said, you know, when you go into the house of the Lord or you do anything for God, you need to present yourself as your absolute best that you can. So I did. But anyway, yes, you get criticized constantly about everything. The way you look, the way you dress, the way you act, the way you talk. What you teach, I mean everything. You got to be able to take that and let it roll off of you. So I agree that you cannot be afraid of what people are going to think of you because if you are, it's going to be a hard walk for you. But anyone who is a hothead is going to have a lot of difficulty not slapping the living daylights out of some people, I'm just saying, or at least reacting very loudly. Because people can be really ugly when they disagree with something that you're saying. And it's a lack of maturity on their part, and it's pridefulness on their part. And the comical part is, most of those who disagree the loudest have little or no walk with the Lord of their own, but they feel they're qualified to judge those who are on their face or on their knees or in the Word every single day. Can you imagine how Almighty God views that? 
As adults, we have the ability to disagree without making a huge issue out of it, but pride makes some people unable to do that, and they end up making fools of themselves. Well, if they want to be hotheads, then that's on them. I mean, this is the problem anymore. Many choose to be a keyboard warrior rather than a doer of the word. But folks need to remember to stop fighting over words, which the word commands in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 14 through 16, under the Lord's approved worker. Remind everyone, and this is starting on verse 14, remind everyone about these things and command them in God's presence to stop fighting over words. Such arguments are useless and they can ruin those who hear them. Work hard so you can present yourself to God and receive his approval. Be a good worker, one who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly explains the word of truth. Avoid worthless, foolish talk that only leads to more godless behavior. You know, in other words, don't take part in the foolishness. I mean, everyone's going to stand before Jesus one day, so better to walk away if they choose not to hear what the word actually says. You know, 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10, For we must all stand before Christ to be judged. We will each receive whatever we deserve for the good or evil we have done in this earthly body. And further on that, Galatians 1 verse 10, For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I yet pleased men, I should not be the servant of Christ. Galatians 4 verse 16, Am I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? You know, if a disagreement presents, you can patiently correct and educate. But if someone is just straight up nasty, then they can answer to God. Because remember, recompense belongs to him. I mean, as a teacher of the word, our job is not to argue. You will not always be liked in what you say. But those listening must understand it's not our words and we're speaking on the teachings. And, you know, Glenda, like you said earlier, many will chastise and criticize. They just like to critique. That's just the way of the world. You know, there's always going to be disagreements on what the word says and how it's translated. But this is why it all comes down to the wisdom and understanding given by time spent in the word and believing scripture as is written. The Holy Spirit will take care of the rest. So don't allow any of what may seem negative to discourage you from serving the Lord. You know, Ephesians 6 verse 8 says, Remember that the Lord will reward each one of us for the good we do, whether we are slaves or free. That is all very true. Very well said. Yes, and then we have education. You know, there are many who believe you cannot minister without four to six years of education. I'm not one of those people. And, you know, you were talking about this earlier. You know, some of the disciples, they were educated, but others were not. But everyone can do their part, even in small ways. Now, it does help to be able to have the gift of evangelism or exhortation. So I do recommend everyone take a spiritual gift test. But I have known many people throughout my life who know enough to talk about the word and help me understand it. And they didn't have an education in terms of a degree. And I don't either. I mean, I don't either. I mean, yeah. And, you know, when I was in my wilderness a few years ago, I had no idea at the time I would be in ministry now. You know, for me, it was an intense refining. And this was before COVID even hit. So, you know, if you haven't heeded his calling yet, you know, I can't even imagine, um, you know, how it must be now. But, you know, I'm not toot my horn on that. What I'm simply trying to say is he will put you through a refining process in order to bring you up to the level of which you can minister. But I continually prayed on what I was to do. And, you know, I said, Lord, okay, you don't want me to work. So what do you want me to do? And I kept spending time in the word and he eventually revealed it to me. 
You know, as a minister of the word, your time spent with the Lord and in his word is your education because it's spiritual in nature and wisdom is given. You know, he provides that understanding through the Holy Spirit. Galatians 1, verse 11 through 12. But I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man. For I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. And this is actually your first step regardless, because nothing else matters unless you have the word and your relationship with Jesus. And you mentioned that just a bit ago when you were talking about Bible knowledge and true belief as it ties into the earlier points. You know, in simplistic terms, get to know the word. This ties in with the last three points. Know your creator. Before I began in ministry, you know, like I was just saying, I studied for months. Sometimes I fell asleep listening to the word. You know, whichever method works best for you, do it, because you'll be glad that you did. Yes, you will, because the time is coming when the word is going to be outlawed in America and probably all around the world. And whatever you have written on your heart is going to be all you have to get through what's coming if you're still here. So let's talk about spouses. Answering your call to ministry is a lot easier if it does not affect anyone else, but that is not always the case. Who you are married to matters when you are in ministry. I'm not saying your spouse can keep you from ministry. It depends on what the Lord has called you to do. But if you have an unbelieving spouse, they may fight you every step of the journey. If you have an immoral spouse, they can end up attracting a lot of negative attention if you're the pastor of a church or something like that and their behavior comes to light. Last year, a woman made a very interesting comment on JPH. She wrote, Job's situation is as the parable of the wheat and tares. Job was wheat. Job was loyal to the Most High God, even in the midst of disaster. Job's wife was a tear. She looked loyal until tough times hit, and it became obvious her heart was not loyal to Almighty God. It would be very difficult to do ministry with Job's wife in your ear telling you to curse God and die because the bank account was empty and there wasn't much food in the house, wouldn't it? You know, Glenda, this is just a thought I have often reflected on since I'm single, and I know you have been too for a long time. While it may not always be the case, I've noticed the Lord has called many of us who are single. And if you were part of the world and something didn't work out continuously, I implore folks to consider that God may have a better plan in mind for you. And if you were in a wrong relationship or lifestyle beforehand, note that it didn't work out for a reason. He calls us out of those first so we can repent and then seek him with our whole hearts before he can get us ready to minister to others. If we have given our hearts to someone else, along with our time and attention, it doesn't leave us as much time to do the study and the works he has called us to do. Our commitments are elsewhere. The word even says in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 23 through 24, God paid a high price for you, so don't be enslaved by the world. Each of you, dear brothers and sisters, should remain as you were when God first called you. And, you know, when we move further on, in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 32 through 35 say, I want you to be free from all the concerns of this life. An unmarried man can spend his time doing the Lord's work and thinking how to please him. But a married man has to think about his earthly responsibilities and how to please his wife. His interests are divided. In the same way, a woman who is no longer married, or has never been married, can be devoted to the Lord and holy in body and in spirit. But a married woman has to think about her earthly responsibilities and how to please her husband. I am saying this for your benefit, not to place restrictions on you. I want you to do whatever will help you serve the Lord best, with as few distractions as possible. 
So am I saying that you should not marry or that you need to get divorced? No, of course not. What I'm saying here is that the word says to remain as you are when you were called. And if you are single, then that works even better in your favor when being called to ministry work, since it requires undivided interests. Just wanted to share that as a, it was a thought I had while you were speaking of spouses and relationships. Those are very good points. Um, I could not agree more. Ministry is not a two hour a week job. When it's done right, you're constantly seeking the Lord for revelation. You're studying his word and you're writing sermons, you're delivering sermons, you're ministering help to people. And if you have a spouse to also be concerned about, that's going to cut into your time for the Lord. So, you know, eventually you're either going to love the spouse more, or you're going to love the work more, and it's going to it's going to make things hard for you. Now, if you have a spouse that loves the Lord doing the work with you, that's probably a good deal, though. Amen. Well, you know, he calls us all in different ways. Part of what I do is watch events and let people know what's going on as it relates to the scripture. And then other times I teach on specific topics he gives to me in spirit. Sometimes we're called to lift others up who need encouragement or give advice and guidance. And it's really continuous because even when I'm not at my computer, I'm often just still and reflecting, waiting for revelation. And that is unless he tells me to rest, which (laughs) I'm not very good at doing since my brain is always in go mode. But then at times I see why he has had me rest, because suddenly then I'll get revelations on a bunch of topics to talk about. And, you know, it all works out because he causes all to work together for good. That's so true. I can relate. I'm not great at resting either. I love my work and there are people that are dying and going to hell every day. In addition, in the time we live in, We really do need to work while it's day. Okay, let's talk about the money part. I'm going to read you the verses, 1 Timothy 3, 1 to 3, the New King James. This is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach. Not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous. A few things to realize about the money part of working for the Lord. Your living comes from the Lord through the generosity of others. I've also found two things or three things to be important. When the Lord invites you to work for him, he does not expect you to live on nothing, but he also is not trying to make you a millionaire. He wants you to have plenty to pay your bills, plus some to bless those around you as he leads. Number two, it is okay to ask him for a reasonable salary. A reasonable salary being something comparable to what you made in your previous job, as long as you're willing to work for it eight hours a day or whatever you worked at that job. The same as you would if you worked for any other employer. But don't be stupid about it. Years ago, I knew a pastoral couple who had only just become pastors. One day I went to their office because I wanted to share with them a revelation I had about the money side of ministry that I thought would bless them. The pastor was a very large man with an ego to match. An anointing God had placed on his life had evidenced itself a few times at a previous church, and he spoke of it often. So I mentioned the thing about asking for a reasonable salary, and his reply was, well, the way I look at it is, what's it worth for a man who can do what I do? A million dollars a year? My jaw dropped. And I quickly ended the conversation and left. There is no way to reason with an ego that size. He had forgotten the anointing was God's, not his, and that God could put him right back where he started. Not long after that, maybe a month, the Lord told me he was done with me at that church. 
and that he did not want me giving any more of his money there. The church shut its doors two months later, and that couple ceased to be my friends because they did not believe God had pulled me out of their church or told me to stop giving. Number three, realize that your provision in ministry is directly proportionate to the amount of hours of hard work and study of the word you are actually putting in doing kingdom work. Let me translate that. You won't say yes to God and then lay on the couch eating bonbons, watching as the stomach turns, okay? I've mentored people who, after they were set up with a website and a podcast and whatever, they thought it was time to go out and play. All their money problems were solved, right? As the Lord was already sending them money, or so they thought. If you think you will go to work for God and he will be easier on slackers than your last job, think again. He is no dummy. And he can see everything about what you do and don't do. So he is miles ahead of your last employer. In this business, if you slack, you lack. The person that, I, that I'm thinking about right now that I saw going out to play, and there were more than one, but one in particular, the donations just immediately tanked. When you don't work, you won't eat. Then they don't work, don't eat. That's what the Bible says. The Lord was not playing when he put that in the word. Another thing. If you want the Lord to bless your finances, you must handle your finances his way. He doesn't bless things that are done the devil's way, okay? That means tithing and offering. No, not to your own ministry. Jesus talked about tithing in the New Testament in Matthew 23, 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Tithing is a spiritual law. You can neglect it if you want, but it allows the enemy full access to your finances. You will always keep going back to the land of lack when you rob God, just so you know that. For those of you who want to do it, a tithe means one-tenth. Ten is the number of testing. Anytime you see the number ten, look for what you're being tested on. Ten plagues in Egypt, ten virgins. Ten times Laban changed Jacob's wages. Ten commandments. And it goes on and on. The tithe is always supposed to be paid, number one, first off the top. And number two, into the storehouse you take your spiritual meat out of so that whoever's preparing spiritual meat for you can continue to do so. Y'all may not realize this, but most people like Ray and I who teach the word of God do not have any other source of income. And we're not the only ones. I'm not saying this to say give to us. I'm saying this is widespread. The ministry work we do is all we have to live on. And many, many other ministers are the same way. Your local minister at your church may be the same way. That's how all of us pay our rent. That's how we pay our light bills. So realize when you accept your assignment from the Lord, this is what it is like. I'm just keeping it real here because you need to understand if you're going to accept that calling. I would be remiss if I painted you a rosy picture and you jumped in and got refined so you could be anointed And then you're ministering to five people and nobody's giving to you and you end up living in your car. Okay. The truth is an uglier picture. Many times other ministers have lamented to me how they're putting out videos or teachings or poured out their hearts on their Facebook pages and doing writings. And all they got was crickets and an empty bank account. So wherever you receive your spiritual teaching is where you tithe. I used to divide my tithe between however many good ministries I listened to each payday when I did not attend church. I'm going to read y'all Malachi 3, 8 to 11. Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. By the way, you're supposed to pay tithes and then pay gratitude offerings on top of that. 
You are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such a blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. Let me stop right there and tell y'all, this is the only place, Malachi 3.10, the only place in the entire Bible where God says, try me, go ahead, prove me in this, prove me. I did test him on that one time. And when I stopped tithing for two weeks, everything I had started breaking down. Believe me, I got my checkbook out quick. And I was just tithing. I was just testing because it said testing. And Malachi verse 3, verse 11. And I will rebuke the devourer for your sake, so that he will not destroy the fruit of your ground, nor shall the vine fail to bear fruit for you in the field, says the Lord of hosts. That Hebrew word translated devourer here means, it's pronounced a hell is similar. I can't say it the Hebrew way. It's a primitive root that means to eat up, burn up, consume, or devour. That means if you stay in rebellion and refuse to give the Lord what is actually already his, you open the door wide for the destroying devourer to come into your life and into your house and into your family and eat up or burn up or consume all that is yours. It is your choice, but it is my job to tell you the truth so you can make an informed choice, okay? Every time you receive increase, which is your paycheck or money you earn or receive as gifts, anything that increases you, you are actually only receiving 90% of what you think you are because the other 10% is the Lord's and he's giving it to you with the 90 as an obedience test for you. Every time you do not tithe, you flunk the test. You steal from God and the other 90% of your money is cursed. That means people will steal from you and your stuff will always be breaking down and your money will feel like it's in a bag with holes in it because it is. And I am not telling you this to get you to tithe to me. You tithe where you're supposed to tithe. Wherever you get your spiritual food is your storehouse. I teach on this because I care about y'all. I want you to lead lives that are blessed. I don't want y'all to be cursed. I don't want your money to be cursed. I want you to walk in all the blessings the Lord has for you. I'm telling you because I want you to have more than enough. See, the devil will always try to get you to blame God when you're in lack. But if you're not doing everything God has told you to do, he's not to blame. I'm just trying to teach you what the word says. Many people disregard the tithing scriptures because their money is where their heart is. It is their treasure. They love their money more than they love their God, though they will tell you otherwise. They cling tightly to their money whenever the offering plate is being passed around at church. They withhold from God, but spend freely on their own personal pleasures. How do you think God sees that? Many disregard tithing because it's in the Old Testament. Well, so is Psalm 23, Psalm 91, and a lot of other stuff that was also given to us to learn from, including the Ten Commandments. So if you throw part of it out, throw the whole thing out, because that means you cannot stand on Psalm 91 anymore if you're going to disregard the Old Testament. Okay, and that's the protection Psalm, and you're going to be need that. The Old Testament did not become irrelevant when Jesus came. In fact, he quoted from it himself. The Old Testament was given to us for examples, types, and shadows. And it is so rich with information about God's character. You are missing out if you do not read it. I'm just saying. Or what about the book of Genesis, which is God's testimony to the creation of all things? Amen. The whole Bible is either true or it's false. Make up your mind. Believe it or don't believe it. Right. And you know, Glenda, on that note, I've spoken on my podcast a few times that you can't cookie cut the word or omit what you don't like. I mean, you don't get to choose. You know, when it comes to giving and tithing, Jesus did in fact lay it out in the New Testament when he talked about the final judgment, which pertains to those who were faithful to him in their works. 
if we look at Matthew 25, verses 31 through 40, But when the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit upon his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered in his presence, and he will separate the people as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep at his right hand and the goats at his left. Then the king will say to those on the right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you fed me. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me into your home. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you cared for me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Then these righteous ones will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink, or a stranger and show you hospitality, or naked and give you clothing? When did we ever see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will say, I tell you the truth, when you did it to one of the least of these brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. So, if the Old Testament is irrelevant, as some claim, why would Jesus have talked about these things as spoken in Matthew 25, specifically verses 35 through 36? You know, clearly, that says you are to give and help where it's needed, and that does include the tithing. Remember, Jesus is the living God, so the Old Testament certainly does apply. Further, where the New Testament is concerned, there are many verses about generous giving. Let's take a look at 2 Corinthians 8, verses 7 through 15, where Paul encourages generous giving. Starting on verse 7, Since you excel in so many ways, in your faith, your gifted speakers, your knowledge, your enthusiasm, and your love from us, I want you to excel also in this gracious act of giving. I am not commanding you to do this, but I am testing how genuine your love is by comparing it with the eagerness of the other churches. You know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty he could make you rich. Here is my advice. It would be good for you to finish what you started a year ago. Last year, you were the first who wanted to give, and you were the first to begin doing it. Now you should finish what you started. Let the eagerness you showed in the beginning be matched now by your giving. Give in proportion to what you have. Whatever you give is acceptable if you give it eagerly. And give according to what you have not what you don't have. Of course, I don't mean your giving should make life easy for others and hard for yourselves. I only mean that there should be some equality. Right now, you have plenty and can help those who are in need. Later, they will have plenty and can share with you when you need it. In this way, things will be equal. As the scriptures say, those who gathered a lot had nothing left over, and those who gathered only a little had enough. So, as you can see, you are encouraged to be generous to others when you're able. But, you know, going back to the Old Testament, Glinda, there are some verses in Deuteronomy that speak similar when it comes to what you referenced just a moment ago from Malachi in regards to tithing. When we take a look at Deuteronomy 15, verse 7, If there is among you a poor man of your brethren within any of the gates in your land which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart nor shut your hand from your poor brother. Deuteronomy 15, verse 9. Be careful not to harbor this wicked thought in your heart. The seventh year, the year of release, is near, so that you look upon your poor brother begrudgingly and give him nothing. He will cry out to the Lord against you, and you will be guilty of sin. Deuteronomy 24, 15. Each day you shall give him his wages and not let the sun go down on it, for he is poor and has set his heart on it, lest he cry out against you to the Lord, and it be a sin to you. So, what do those verses mean? Well, it too applies to tithing. 
You know, if you're capable of helping someone or giving to someone in need, and then you withhold, and that person then cries out to the Lord because they are in lack, then it's a sin of that person who didn't act when they could have. And And God answers those crying outs, too. When somebody cries out like that, he answers. He takes that very seriously. That's referenced somewhere else in the Bible I can't remember right now. Yeah, I believe you're thinking of Luke 18, verses 6 through 8, where it says, Then the Lord said, Learn a lesson from this unjust judge. Even he rendered a just decision in the end. So don't you think God will surely give justice to his chosen people who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will grant justice to them quickly. But when the Son of Man returns, how many will he find on the earth who have faith? And, you know, that's just the same as, you know, kind of similar to what I read earlier from uh, Matthew 25. Then we look at James 4.17, which is also the New Testament. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. And moving on to James 5, verses 1 through 6. Look here, you rich people, weep and groan with anguish because of all the terrible troubles ahead of you. Your wealth is rotting away, and your fine clothes are moth-eaten rags. Your gold and silver are corroded. The very wealth you were counting on will eat away your flesh like fire. This corroded treasure you have hoarded will testify against you on the day of judgment. For listen, hear the cries of the field workers, whom you have cheated of their pay. The cries of those who harvest your fields have reached the ears of the Lord of heaven's armies. You have spent your years on earth in luxury, satisfying your every desire. You have fattened yourselves for the day of slaughter. You have condemned and killed innocent people who do not resist you. And you know, when we move on, throughout this podcast, we've been referencing First Timothy as it applies to tithing to the teachers of the word. And when we look at 1 Timothy in chapter 5, verses 17 through 18 say, Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. You know, expanding on that, Paul also leaves further instructions for the church itself in 1 Timothy chapter 6 verses 17 through 19, which say, Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. And, you know, we can even... Look at the book of Proverbs, you know, Proverbs 3, verse 27 through 28. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due, when it is in the power of your hand to do so. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come back, and tomorrow I will give it, when you have it with you. You know, in other words, what all these verses are saying, that if you are able, give to those who are in need, but also to those who feed you, and do not withhold. Yes, and, re- and remembering those wicked ones in power will soon take it all from you anyway, and then you won't even have it to give, and you will realize you could have planted all those seeds to meet somebody else's needs that would spring up as a harvest that meets your needs in the time of the end. Amen. And you know, the word says what it says. This is why I always say in many of my podcasts when I conclude them to be vigilant as to the times, but continue to do good. And what that speaks of is being merciful and giving. You know, that's the works by faith. I mean, it's giving thanks. Don't allow the enemy to convince you that you are at a loss if you have plenty and can help support someone or take care of someone in need. Remember 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 7, in that the word says, After all, 
We brought nothing with us when we came into the world, and we can't take anything with us when we leave it. That is the truth. Nobody is going to heaven pulling a U-Haul with all their stuff in it. So if any of y'all thought you was going to do that, you're not. We always need to be rich toward the God who saved us. We owe him everything. How can we withhold anything from him? And how can we face him if we do? He will surely leave us behind in the tribulation for refining for our disobedience if we do that. And that is a guaranteed wilderness season, the hardest one you could possibly go through because the whole earth is going to be shaken and terrible evil will cover the face of the earth. I say no thank you to that. I want to go to heaven. And I only wish everybody I loved were ready to go too. I want them there with me. Well, that's all we have for y'all this week. I hope this podcast has blessed you. Ray, thank you so much for collaborating with me on this podcast. You are a great teacher of the word. And I, for one, am very grateful for your ministry. And my dog's over here breathing hard. Sorry. Well, thank you, Glenda. I enjoyed being here today with you. Do you want to tell the listeners how they can contact you and, and how they can find your website? Sure. Well, listeners can find my site at www.innocence, the word innocence, redeemed.blog. That's all one word, www.innocenceredeemed.blog. And if you go under the About section, which contains my testimony, when you scroll all the way down, there's a contact form at the bottom of the page where you can reach out to me. Do you have anything else to uh, add to the podcast or recommend? Don't expect perfection from yourself. You know, understand the Lord doesn't expect you to be perfect, so don't beat yourself up. I mean, if you go into ministry, you're not going to get it right the first few times, and some people don't get it right for a while. Even to this day, we're all still learning. There is no perfect answer for any one single person. You know, it's all about ministering the Word and the Lord's grace in leading you. Amen. It's all about just sharing Jesus with people. It can take years to get you out of the equation so the Spirit of God can have His way in the ministry. If you commit completely to stay with it, the Lord will help you. If you fall, you get back up. Amen. I want to end with just this one thing. It is always important to look at the context of verses you study to gain a full understanding. I want you to notice the verse immediately preceding Luke 14:28. 14:28 says, "For which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost whether he has enough to finish it." So we're talking about counting the cost, okay? But 14:27 right before that says, "And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple." I looked at the meaning of the Greek word translated disciple in this verse. It means a follower or pupil, someone who learns from someone else. So the Lord is saying, if you are not willing to take up and bear your cross and follow after him and walk in his ways, you haven't learned anything at all. Let us not be found among those who are unwilling to walk in his ways and follow him. For sure, we will be left behind if we are. Is anything worth that? Thanks for listening. Jesus bless you. Y'all have a great week. Thank you so much for tuning in today to Just Praise Him Radio. You can contact me by mail at my new address, JPH Inc., Glenda Lomax, P.O. Box 60, Glencoe, Arkansas, 72539 or by email at jphtoday at gmail.com. JPH is not affiliated with any nonprofit organization, church, or denomination. 
Does your life feel like it's falling apart around you? Are multiple things going wrong all at once? Does it seem all your comforts have been stripped away? You may have entered the wilderness. Wilderness experiences are often times of great discomfort and lack. Every Christian must pass through the desert on the way to their promised land. Find out how to go from surviving to thriving by partnering with God as He leads you in the path that will strengthen your faith and prepare you to step into your destiny. The Wilderness Companion will help you find out why you have been led into the wilderness. Find out the biggest hindrances to receiving the provision you need in the wilderness. Find out what the seven temptations of the wilderness are. Learn how to partner with God in His purposes for you in the desert seasons. Get your copy of The Wilderness Companion today. The Wilderness Companion by Glinda Lomax on Amazon.com in print, Kindle, or audiobook. Have you heard? The 2016 and 2017 messages have been published in book form. Even those who do not profess a belief in God can see something is amiss in the world around us. What is coming for our world in these last days? What does the Lord want us doing while we're waiting for His glorious reappearance? Time of Reckoning and Soon It Will Be Night each contain approximately 200 prophetic messages and visions from the throne room of God telling what is coming to America and the world in these end times. The Lord has always warned nations when they were headed for destruction. He has always warned His own people. Are we also being warned? Get your copy of Time of Reckoning and Soon It Will Be Night, available now on Amazon.com. If you ask anyone you know what the most difficult experience of their life has been, many will answer about a time of betrayal. All those called to walk the narrow path will at some point encounter Judas. How will you respond? Do you know how to recognize Judas when he shows up in your life? Can you keep Judas from bringing destruction to your life and ministry? How can you minimize what Judas cost you? Can you pass the test of absolute betrayal? Get your copy of The Judas Test, available in print and new audiobook. The Judas Test by Glenda Lomax, available now on Amazon.com. Sold out for 30 pieces of silver? In Exodus 21:32, it is the price of a dead slave. In Leviticus 27, 2-7, it is the price of a live one. Jesus was sold for the price of a bondservant. Precious Jesus, the Son of God, the Prince of Peace, the King of Kings, why did Judas sell his friend out so cheap?